Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Leading in a Crisis podcast. On this podcast, we talk all things crisis management, and we deliver that through storytelling, interviews, and lessons learned shared from experienced crisis leaders. I'm Tom Mueller coming to you from Texas today. With me, as always, is my co-host, Mark Mullen, joining us from Washington State. Hi, Mark. Hello, Tom. Looking forward to our time together today. On today's episode, we're continuing our conversation with retired U.S. Ambassador Lewis Luck. Let's rejoin the conversation now. Ambassador, I know you've had you know some challenges working with uh, with difficult bosses or tough bosses uh, in some situations like this. What's your advice to folks who who might have to deal with a you know a less than sympathetic boss when you're in tough situation like this? You uh, enlist your allies wherever you can find them and try to get the help that you need in order to pull sanity out of uh, what oftentimes seems to be cosmic disorder. And, uh, you know, I tried to do that uh, in Haiti. And sometimes I just had to, you know, kind of put my foot down and say, look, uh, qualified to do this job. You know, I was an ex-ambassador and had the Iraq responsibility. No Haiti. So, I mean, find somebody else better than me if you can. But in the meantime, let me do my job and uh, put your foot down and say, look, if this is going to work, you got to let me do my job. And that's what I did. And, and, and to their credit, they, 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 they cooperated and backed off. Uh, they, so it worked out fine. So how long were you into the response before you, you really knew that it was going to work? I mean, there had to be a period of time when you were just doing your best and wondering if everything would be on fire in the morning. But well, we didn't we didn't really have the the luxury of even wondering. I mean, it was just get up and, and do it again and, and solve the, the problems of the of the moment, the you know, the hour, the the day and the week, if you could if you can. Yeah, we had a lot of different organizations tugging at our sleeves, and, and rightfully so. Sort of the point of the spear. Uh, not only did we have uh, all, the, all the international actors, you know, the the Canadians, the French, the Mexican Army, I mean, the Mexican Navy was there. I mean, all kinds of folks, all kinds of organizations there. Um, and the UN, probably most importantly. But we also had a host of NGOs that were that that sort of and I say this in a nice way, nice way littered the littered the ground in, in Haiti because it's called the Republic of NGOs. Because the government institutionally is so weak, the, the this multitude of NGOs try to come in and fill the fill the void. So we have to deal with them, uh, and and that was fine because in in a lot of ways the NGOs were the boots on the ground that we could provide. Uh, in in some cases, certainly not all cases, but in many cases, we we could provide them the funding to do what they had the expertise to do because they had the people. Uh, and the ability to to get out, you know, for example, to to distribute the actually distribute the food, to actually uh, procure and distribute the water, to you know all of the stuff. The the NGOs were really well, much more well equipped, trained, and uh, had the personnel capabilities of, of of doing their job better than than, than we did. And it was our mm-hmm. job to work with them, and and their job to work with us. Sounds like organizationally, you had a massive and critically important logistics function and another equally important liaison function because yeah. you, you had to get people in the country and you had to coordinate the efforts of a plethora 
uh, response organizations. We had um, a system whereby we could actually task the military, and this was this was formalized. We would we would task the military that had, for example, we we would find out about there's a there's an orphanage up above Port-au-Prince that hasn't had any food in three days, don't have any water, and you know we could task the military with, excuse me, getting a helicopter to these places and getting getting the relief that they needed. But that would be like there would be like three thousand of those a day. It seemed like I mean we were absolutely overwhelmed. And and the other thing is you would get all these people, well-connected, quote-unquote, well-connected people from Washington that would call you because somehow they knew how to get a hold of you or they knew your email or they knew your phone number or they would call you. And we didn't have phones to start with. I mean, all of that stuff got reestablished over time. They would call you and ask for special special favors. So, you know, you try to comply with it if you can while not losing sight of the big picture of, of you know, this This is overall, we have a need an overall coordinated um, response that's going to going to be able to take care of not just the the people that you know the, the greasy wheels that that, that, that squeak the, the loudest but uh or the squeak wheel but but you know all of the uh, all across the board because the, the the needs were were overwhelming one of the uh, challenges that I'm sure you dealt with there was uh, donations coming in of various things. And uh, I wonder if, if there's an example of, you know, sort of how you dealt with that. And, you know, did they get in the way of what you really needed to get done, you know, specifically around, you know, housing or tents and that? We as an agency weren't really overwhelmed with uh, donations. Um, it, like I think NGO, NGOs were uh, a, a lot of, very well-meaning people sort of flooded into flooded into Port-au-Prince from all over the place, the U.S. and Canada and the DR and all, all around the region to try to help. And a lot of them were ill-equipped to help. Uh, they didn't speak any French or they didn't have a cell phone. They didn't have any about the, the local money. They weren't trained for a uh, uh, austere environment, shall we say, uh, to put it diplomatically, which is what Haiti is a very austere environment. And so they weren't, they really didn't know what they were doing. Uh, many did, but it was, a, it was a, it was a big mess to start with. Also um, a lot of the NGOs, the organizations would, were, they were flooded with well-meaning donations, which would have been a whole lot. It would have been a lot better to handle it if they had simply been given money as opposed to being given commodities because you can handle money and, and, procure what you need most of it locally you don't have to bring it in from the outside so i mean there were all those kinds of things um what was the other one uh, tom you asked the tense issue oh yeah okay we had we had this immediate concern well not immediate but after about three or four weeks it dawned on us that hurricane season was coming or rainy season was coming and we had massive hundreds of thousands uh, of people living in the streets uh, in, in in the open and they were people were afraid to go back into buildings they'd either been completely destroyed or they were arch architecturally suspect and they were they could potentially fall in on the people that, that continued to uh, inhabit them and and, and sometimes did and the well-meaning people always thought that you know what we need is let's let's have zillions of tents and in fact tents in a, in a situation like Haiti just were not it was not the proper 
uh, approach. I mean, in some places, probably it could have been Haiti, where you had the open spaces were very, very limited in the in a very crowded urban uh, area. Everybody was crowded into uh, what used to be either parks or uh, open spaces or, you know, areas that had been sort of cleared of rubble and so forth. And the problem with tent probably turned into something far more permanent than they should have been. And tents fall apart. They rot. They fly away in the wind. And, and when we were going to have in abundance when the rainy season started. So we just did not need more tents. They were, they were, it was not a good, it was not a, the, the optimal solution. What we needed was more was tarps as opposed to tents because tarps could last longer. They were more durable. They could um, be outfitted with, you know, uh, framing. So in, in some cases in order to be able to last longer and be more of a sustainable uh, solution without you know, without even pretending that they're, they're going to be permanent because hopefully they weren't going to be permanent. Uh, I was my story. I think I mentioned to you was that I, I, President Clinton was there, and he and President uh, George Bush forty three used to kind of come with great frequency. And uh, Clinton kind of took me aside at the airport uh, one day at the on the tarmac and said, "Ambassador, I have six hundred thousand tents from Bangladesh. I'm ready to give you or bring in for you." And I said, "Oh." please, Mr. President, do not do that. And I gave him that speech I just gave you. So we don't need them. Please don't. This would have hurt us more than it, it, it helped us. So instead, we, we politely turned that down and, and procured uh, our via our shelter people and our, uh, our dark uh, experts. We brought in 300,000, 350,000 tarps, very durable, uh, high quality tarps. And they lasted for, you know, several years in some cases. I, I, I would go back to Haiti and see, see these things still being used. But that was the solution. And we brought in the, that number before the rains really hit. And that was sort of a logistically, that was a, I think that was a big win for uh, for the recipients of, the, of those tarps. So when did you start thinking about demobilization? We... Uh, after I guess about a month, you know, when we figured out there was a, there was sufficient food and sufficient clean water, and we were we were flowing in uh, medicine, and it wasn't a it wasn't going to be a an absolute humanitarian disaster other than the the immediate damage of the quake and the people that were that were injured uh, and died from that. I mean, it was every every day. I mean, every week it got a little bit better. You know, one week we would get cell phone service would be would be uh, back uh, another we would have a, actually a place to sleep or even though for the three hours a night or, or whatever that we had and oh and and slowly order was uh, i wouldn't say order because haiti you know haiti's just a tough road to hoe uh in, in the best of times and by the by the for coincidentally i'd actually been in haiti three weeks before the earthquake and i had seen it sort of when it was kind of at one of its more hopeful stages things were looking looking a lot better than they were during and right after the earthquake and, and better than now but um anyway so i guess by after the end of the first month it was we, it was starting to you know we're starting to see much more economic activity uh trade was reestablished. we had brought in a dock from uh, from florida to serve as an artificial uh port because the the unloading cranes were were damaged at the, in Haiti so things got fixed and we 
did not need to be spending a huge amount of uh, taxpayer money on things that we we shouldn't be providing long term when the, the Haitians or the Haitian government or the Haitian private sector or you know the authorities uh, otherwise would should have been providing. Ambassadors, you uh, sort of step back and look at the experience that you've had in dealing with you know some of the largest response issues that a person really could be asked to deal with. I know there's leadership lessons that come from that, and I wonder if you could just pull out a couple of those lessons. You know, when you think about young, younger foreign service people coming up through the ranks who might get tapped into leadership roles, what are some of those, you know, those key behaviors or lessons that you've taken away from situations like this that you'd pass on to younger crisis managers? Number one, uh, have a structure in place to be able to respond competently to these kinds of things. In other words, in in our situation in Haiti, we had the DART and we had the military assets. I mean, somebody was running the airport and it wasn't us. It was, it was the U.S. Air Force, for example. Use, in other words, have an organization and use the tools that are available to you and use them competently. Um, have a, a, a large enough vision that you can see where your needs are and then be able to delegate authority to people to do their job and not micromanage people. Let them do their job until they screw up. They're, they're, they're golden. Okay. And then uh, I think demand or uh, accountability and feedback, uh, make sure that there's good communications in both in all directions. Uh, let people know what you're thinking, take their feedback, listen to the people that you, that you, that you hopefully have brought in because you trust them and you know of their of their of their record that they've been able to do this in other places or in different ways it's not rocket science but you you've got to have i think a good managerial sense common sense uh and and, and be understand how to work uh productively within an organization and all of that entails and and be able to you know probably some kind of tip, you know biblical verse that whatever look to the hills for from whence come with your help i mean the military just pulled our irons, irons out of the fire every day. I mean, they were wonderful. And um, it, it wasn't all sweetness and light, but it was, but it, after a fashion, it worked really, really well. And there, we did a lot of follow-up, a lot of studies about lessons learned. And we went around, the, the general and I, General Keen and I went around and gave seminars on uh, how to do this kind of stuff. And uh, um, uh, emph- with an emphasis on how, how, specifically how you do quality successful civilian military uh, court. Ambassador, thank you very much for coming on and uh, sharing some of your experiences and your crisis leadership stories with Mark and I and our team. We really appreciate you coming to join us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Leading in a Crisis podcast. If you like what you're hearing here, please subscribe and like the podcast. And also tell your friends and colleagues about us as well. And if you'd like to reach the show, you can email me at tom at leadinginacrisis.com. We will see you again soon on another episode of the Leading in a Crisis podcast.